What if a conversation could change your mind about yourself and about the world? What if a conversation could one day lead to a change in government policy? I'm Dr. Mark Halloran, and you're listening to Deep Trouble. The Deep Trouble podcast is presented by Trouble Magazine at troublemag.com. Thanks for listening. And here we are in the studios of 94.9 Main FM, and it's time for Deep Trouble. I'm Steve Charman, and I'm with Dr. Mark Halloran. Today, we have a particularly stimulating interview for you. You'll be interviewing Dr. Anthony Dillon. Dr. Anthony Dillon is a postdoctoral research fellow with Australian Catholic University. His teaching research interests include alternative conceptualizations of mental health, and he has a particular focus on ADHD. His expertise is in statistics, psychometrics, applied psychology, and Indigenous health. Now, when you list his qualifications like that, some of our listeners might be thinking, well, here's an Indigenous scholar who talks in a very abstract way or maybe with uh, skills in abstract thinking. But one of the things you will find in listening to this interview that he has a very down-to-earth way of looking at things. I would say that he has a positivist approach to a lot of the things that we're talking about. The things we talk about in, uh, are in relation to Black Lives Matter, but particularly in relation to Indigenous deaths in custody. When I listen to Anthony Dillon, even when I listened to the interview with Professor Gigi Foster, it made me think about the divide between neoconservatism and, say, left-wing radicalism. There seems to be such a big difference that they're two completely different ways of seeing reality. Yes. I mean, some of it comes down to politics and some of it comes down to particular readings of the data and also expertise. And so the issue in this is when you're talking about these different viewpoints, it's incredibly complicated and there are elements of all the viewpoints which are correct to some extent. All right. Well, what about we play that interview? I tend to think, Mark, that some people will have an emotional reaction to this interview because Mm. they're just not used to hearing people expressing such divergent views. There are themes discussed in this interview that some listeners may find distressing. So here it is. Dr. Mark Halloran in conversation with Dr. Anthony Dillon. Dr. Anthony Dillon, thank you very much for agreeing to be part of the interview and the series. My pleasure. You've been a vocal critic recently of the Black Lives Matters movement and also of the marches, which is focused on in Australia, the deaths in custody. I was wondering if you could tell me why that is. Okay. I've been a critic of them recently, yes, but also been a critic for a much longer time of the bigger picture, the broader context, and that is the promotion of the myth that Aboriginal people are endlessly victims of white Australia. So what we're seeing recently is the BLM, Black Lives Matter, have capitalised on what they thought was an injustice, Aboriginal deaths in custody, 
And there's a couple of things wrong with that. First of all, they only seem to be interested in black lives if there's a white perpetrator. And they believe that for Aboriginal deaths in custody, that these are people who have died at the hands of white people. And while that might be true for a minority, the vast majority it's not. And also, as people are starting to slowly realise now, thank goodness, that Aboriginal people in custody do not die at higher rates than non-Aboriginal people in custody. So that's why I've been a, a critic, because it's a myth and it's a poisonous myth. Well, I read in your work that since the Royal Commission into Deaths in Custody in 1991, uh, Aboriginal deaths in custody, that 432 Aboriginal people have died in custody. But you compare that to the 1,600 non-Indigenous people have died in custody in the same time. And if you standardise it and you report stats from the Australian Institute of Criminology saying that, in fact, Indigenous people are now less likely than non-Indigenous people to die in custody. Yes. And that's not my stats too. It's not research I've done. It's just Google. Just look at the reports. And that's been known since day one of the Royal Commission. So, I mean, there's a reasonable amount of complexity around this, though, isn't there? I mean, it's not, it's not so much the death rate. It's the balance of the death rate with the incarceration rate. So even though Aboriginal people only comprise about 3% of the population, uh, now up to 28% of Aboriginal people are incarcerated, adult males. Yes, and that's a different issue. It's related but it is a different issue from deaths in custody, yes. The higher incarceration rate is something that nobody denies and nobody thinks a good thing. So we can all agree that we need to bring those incarceration rates down. How we bring them down, there could be disagreement there. So this is where the contention comes in. You quote a stat which talks about 2016 to 2017, the death rate for Indigenous prisoners was 0.14% out of 100 compared to 0.19% for non-Indigenous prisoners. So using the same stats or stats from the Australian Institute for Criminology, uh, The Guardian, I think, calculated the crude rate per 100,000 to show that Indigenous people are actually 10 times more likely to die in prison than non-Indigenous people. Yes, but care needs to be taken in drawing that conclusion. So if I can just give you a couple of examples. First of all, the thinking they've used there, if I was to apply similar thinking, I would say, oh, there's a terrible injustice. Men in jail, you know, 90% of prisoners in jail that die are men, and yet they only make up 50% of the population. Well, that's true, but you need to consider that within the prison population, they also make up about 95% of the prisoners. Yes. So you really can't compare that figure to, you know, the 50% in the population. Mm. As another example, if there was a, a town somewhere in Australia where 90% of its population were Aboriginal, you would expect about 90% of the deaths in that town to be Aboriginal. It would make no sense to compare the death rates or the number of deaths to the 3% figure, which is the Australian-wide population. Does that make sense? Well, yeah, I think in terms of what people often forget is standardisation to populations. But I suppose the argument then would be the focus. So your focus is slightly different. Your focus is not about the deaths in custody themselves. I take it from reading your work and you're not denying that people die under conditions sometimes because of correctional control and violence. But your issue is that the focus should be rather on the actual incarceration rate itself and what we do about that. 
Yeah, the focus should be on presenting the truth, and that is Aboriginal people in custody are not more likely to die than non-Aboriginal people in custody. And given that there are high incarceration rates, which nobody would dispute, how do we go about reducing the incarceration rates? And just on that matter too, some people think, oh, well, you know, the best way to prevent deaths in custody is to reduce the incarceration rates. No, all that does is just change the location of where people die. As pointed out, as far as death rates and, and that go, Aboriginal people are doing well, or at least better or equal to non-Aboriginal people in jail. But yes, we'd prefer not to have anyone in jail, but um, mm. given that Aboriginal people are so overrepresented, we want them back in the community, working, being fathers, being husbands, being role models, that sort of thing, contributing to society. Well, do we have a clear breakdown for Indigenous people in prison, the, the percentage of people who die due to things like medical issues versus people who die because of some incident that involves correctional staff? Those sorts of figures you can grab straight off the Australian Institute of Criminology webpage where they talk about the leading causes. So, for example, if I just pull one up, natural causes and hanging seem to be the big ones. So in 2015-16, from 91 to 2015, the majority of deaths were natural causes, 58%, followed by hanging, 32%. Is the rate of suicide for Indigenous people in prison higher than non-Indigenous Australians? I I don't know. Hmm. It just says here that 32% of the deaths were for hanging. How that compares with non-Indigenous, I don't know. You faced a fair amount of abuse for your views. Why do you think that is? Yeah. Well, because the victim brigade out there do not want to hear that Aboriginal people in custody are less likely to die than non-Aboriginal people in custody. It goes against their narrative. It's as simple as that. Because I, I didn't say anything nasty. I just simply stated that the message which many people have been presenting for a long time is incorrect. As simple as that. Well, let's talk about some of the stats. So in 1991, 14.3% of male prisoners in Australia were Indigenous. And now by March 2020, it was 28.6%. Uh, I suppose the people who would be making the argument that this incarceration rate of a population of people who only comprise 3% of the population is related to something that you would refer to as systemic racism. What would you say about that? Look, racism may play a part, but it is certainly not the big factor. And a term like systemic racism, it's a very nebulous term. You know, it's morphed into anything that's white is systemic racism. We know that many of the Aboriginal people in prison are there for committing serious crimes. A lot of it's violence and attack on people and their property. So, you know, that's a serious problem. And if you want to try and argue, oh, that well, that's systemic racism or it comes back to colonisation and disposition yes. or whatever, I think that's a terrible insult to the many, many more Aboriginal people who don't get in trouble, who don't commit crimes, who are you know, just ordinary everyday people like you and I just trying to live their lives, who just want to contribute to society and make this a better country. So how come they've managed to escape the past and the trauma or whatever other excuses they used? It would seem to me that some of that would come down to some extent individual histories and community histories and geographical locations. Geographical location is a big one, yeah. Certainly if you live in a rural or remote area, and I'm not trying to say that living in a city is the greatest thing because living in a city certainly has its problems, but if you're in an area where employment opportunities are limited, 
you put a thousand white people there where there's no jobs, throw in a bit of alcohol, yes. and you're going to have big problems. And so as Nicholas Rothwell once said in The Australian in an article he wrote, it's about place, not race. You're listening to the Deep Trouble podcast. Dr. Mark Halloran in conversation with Dr. Anthony Dillon, academic and commentator on Indigenous affairs. Often when I'm reading these articles, I'd be interested in your thoughts that I feel as though when we're talking about incarceration rates and issues in terms of domestic violence and child protection removal and, you know, any kind of systemic problem within a community, we often conflate some of the effects of race with socioeconomic status and generational poverty. Yeah, sure. I wouldn't discount that. So let's talk about some of the issues in terms of the stats. Death from medical issues. It was suggested or proffered by the Guardian newspaper that prisons and hospitals failed to follow their own procedures in 37% of cases where Indigenous people died compared to 21% of non-Indigenous people. You know, I don't have all these stats at my fingertips, but something like that, I would like to have a good look at the data. But just another side to that, there was an article in Australian about three or four years ago a senior officer with more than 20 years experience in regional watch houses, he was reported to have said the complex health problems of many Aboriginal people, even young ones, should terrify police who are required to care for them. Okay? It should terrify police who are required to care for them. So, yes, just like outside of jail, we know that there are medical problems, diabetes, which is rampant in my family. And after these last two or three months of not going to the gym... I'm really frightened of going to the doctor for my blood sugar test. I don't want to do it because I know it's likely to be the outcome. But you have those sorts of problems. I think what you're talking about is complex comorbidities that might explain differences. Yes. And so, I mean, that's no excuse not to offer the best medical care available, but we just be aware of the limitations and what factors are at play here. In terms of the justice system, do you think it varies from state to state in terms of the way they respond to Indigenous people at every level of the justice system, from through from police to the courts? Is there state variation, are you asking? Yeah. Yes, I would say so. Certainly in Western Australia, there's higher rates of incarceration. So yeah, there's certainly variation. There's variation across the, the lifespan when people come into contact with the justice system. For example, just reading in The Australian just this week, which has been reported before, but it was saying many Indigenous kids from remote Kimberley communities went to prison on remand in Perth because there was no responsible adult to look after them back in their home. So, you know, you've got that at the younger years. So, yeah. Well, you've taken exception to the cry from some of those Aboriginal communities. I spoke to a filmmaker who makes films with Indigenous communities in Arnhem Land, and they were talking about a group I think was called Grandmothers Against Removal. And you've, in a lot of your articles, talked about what you think is wrong with the narrative now of calling child protection removals a stolen generation. I was wondering if you'd like to talk about that. Yeah, well... I think there's a big difference between what may have happened decades ago under various policies compared to now where the child is identified as being in risk. And I've had one police officer and one social worker tell me that these days they're just afraid to intervene where an Indigenous kid needs protection for fear of being accused of stealing the child. So look, I'm all for 
different departments supporting families, working with them and that sort of thing. But if there's a real risk, that, that shouldn't be called stealing. Or if you're going to call it stealing, call it stealing for white children as well. Well, once again, it, it seems an issue of child protection rates are highest amongst communities that are affected by generational poverty. Yes. Um, and so that seems to be a separate issue. I spoke about it in that interview because uh, I've worked alongside child protection and I think it's potentially a very dangerous narrative. That narrative being what? Uh, the narrative of that child protection removals in current times are constitute a stolen generation. Yeah, I, I believe so too. And, you know, there's Indigenous leaders that feel the same way. Mick Gooda has spoken out about that. What's the lovely magistrate from Western Australia? Sue Gordon spoken yeah. out against that as well. These social workers and that shouldn't be walking on eggshells. And I have a relative who works in the system and she sees it often where Indigenous kids uh, are left in situations where a white kid probably wouldn't be left in in that situation. Right? Certainly I've also spoken about in Victoria, at least the, my knowledge in terms of the child first policies that for Indigenous families, the process of removal is sensitive around cultural issues. And so Indigenous children, if they're removed, the first step is with extended family or failing that kinship group or failing kinship group, other Indigenous people from a different kinship group, and then finally failing that to be placed with a non-Indigenous carer. And you sort of took exception to that as well. Oh, you've read everything I've written, have you? Just about. <laughs> Okay. Yes, yes, I have. Um, I don't agree with the hierarchy and I'm certainly not opposed to an Indigenous kid being placed with Indigenous family if they provide a good standard of care. Now, I have a friend, she's a white woman, an elderly woman. She was married to an Aboriginal fellow, so she's the, the head of a large Aboriginal family. And she's telling me the story about one of her granddaughters and how there's this custody battle between her and the Aboriginal grandmother, so there's another grandmother who's Aboriginal. And she said it's so hard to compete against that, even though the granddaughter has her flesh and blood, but the child also has Aboriginal flesh and blood, not only through my friend's husband, who's deceased, but also through the other parent, if that makes sense. And she said it's just very hard to compete because of the courts and that they favour the Indigenous bloodline in these mm. things. And I've heard similar stories, and I don't want to give too much details in case I yes. identify someone. But I had one friend tell me, he and his partner were looking after an, an Indigenous kid. Yeah. Uh, not that he had much Indigenous ancestry, by the way. And they said the department didn't really care about the other ancestry. It was just the Indigenous ancestry they were focused on. Yeah. The department were more concerned about the drug addict mother's rights and visitations and culture and all that rather than the kid's well-being. Simply because, you know, he had a bit of an Indigenous ancestry, as did the mother yeah. also have a bit of an Indigenous ancestry so uh, but coming back to the hierarchy no i would just rather see a kid whether they be indigenous or non-indigenous placed with a loving caring family i, I really don't mind if a non-indigenous kid gets yeah. placed with a asian family or an aboriginal family if they're fit for the job i think that's the most important thing I mean, is there still an issue around preservation of culture i mean how do you then go about preserving culture and connections within kinship groups yeah, which is always the argument that's used. And again, yes. this whole notion of culture is a very nebulous thing. As my friend, the white woman said, when she had pleaded her case in court and she was asked about, well, you know, what about the Aboriginal culture? 
she said, well, first of all, she's come from a home where the culture she knew was drugs and alcohol, and she'll be close or having frequent contact with her Aboriginal cousins. So if an Aboriginal kid goes into care with a non-Aboriginal family, that kid is not kept in a vacuum, okay? Presumably, that kid can go to cultural activities, can mix with other Indigenous kids, and just lead a normal life. But again, when it comes down to exactly what culture is, I'd like someone to unpack that for me, give me some specifics, and give me some examples which you think that a kid could not access or be exposed if they were living with a non-Indigenous family. I mean, the best culture for kids is one of love. Well, I think there's a separate issue. I mean, one of the issues that I remember we encountered was that, I'm talking about this anecdotally as well, but Indigenous families outside of the kinship group or even within the kinship group didn't want to take the children of other families because they felt as though they were sort of stealing them away from them. And so it is incredibly sensitive because of the uh, stolen generation. You know, I suppose that's, you know, it's sort of a raw nerve, isn't it? You know, the whole thing around removal. It's understandable in that respect. Yeah, well, I guess when, when the public are constantly told by activists, oh, it's creating another stolen generation. Okay, first of all, Large numbers of Indigenous kids being removed is a big problem and that needs to be tackled in a sensitive manner. But I don't think it should be equated with it's a stolen generation. They're very different issues. And, you know, the, the problem should be evaluated for what it is, not just conflated with a stolen generation. When I read your work, I got a sense of, I remember a particular quote where you said, it, it's okay for me to acknowledge the past and everything that's happened throughout our history but I don't care whether other people do. Because you get activists who keep saying, we cannot move forward until we acknowledge the past. Well, first of all, many Aboriginal people have moved on. They're getting on well with their lives. I come from a big family of them, and the Aboriginal side of my family are not unique in that regard. They're just, like I mentioned earlier, they're just your average normal neighbour who just wants to get on with life. Now, if someone wants to acknowledge the past, whether it be an individual or a government or another body like a university or some profession, that's fine. I'm happy for them to do that, but they should not be made to do that. You know, if I use a, a very simple example, let's suppose you and I go out for a meal one night and you do the old forget your wallet trick yes. and leave me to pay the bill or you step on my foot on the way out or something like that. And next time we meet up, Okay, if you want to apologise for what was done in the past, that's great. I would accept the apology and I think it does you a whole lot better. But if I'm to force you to apologise or I'm to force you to acknowledge what happened, hey, do you remember last time you did that? Are you going to say sorry, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah. That's not good. If you want to acknowledge it, great. But it's got to be a free choice. Certainly it must depend upon the magnitude of the wrongdoing. I mean, that's what the court system and the justice system, although it's mostly about law, is about, is about, you know, forcing accountability upon people who've done wrong. Yeah, but, you know, what's been done wrong in, in this sense is there's no one to take to court. You know, when they talk about acknowledging the past, no one to take to court. You're listening to the Deep Trouble podcast. Dr. Mark Halloran in conversation with Dr. Anthony Dillon, academic and commentator on Indigenous affairs. You know, in terms of the past, we're not really going to focus too much on the past. I've done that before. I've talked about the history, our local history with, with a local elder in this series. But 
I guess, what degree is your feeling that the past influences now? Certainly the past is a shaping factor in life. So if I have an accident or when I'm younger or a shark bites off my legs or whatever, it's going to change the activities that I can participate in today. So I'm not saying that the past is completely irrelevant, null and void. But when it comes to our psychosocial well-being, our general getting along day to day, when we look at the historical past, colonisation seems that, well, the invasion, if you want to call it, seems to be the big one, which a lot of people come back to. It's their reference point and say, well, you know, my ancestors suffered back then and they probably did. But to say that that is affecting me in a big way today, I think is an exaggeration. And again, it's an insult to the many, many fine, hardworking, high-achieving Aboriginal people who some are superstars and, like I said, some are just your ordinary neighbours, quiet achievers, but they're doing well. They're not complaining. They're having a good, fun life, good yes. journey. It's an insult to them. So that's not to say there aren't big, serious problems happening today which, you know, may have had their roots in the past. And if you want to go back even further, you could argue, well, the original sin in the Garden of Eden, blah, 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 blah. That's its logical end. So, yeah, there are some communities, remote areas in Australia where the past certainly changed things radically. But the solution to those people that are living in those environments where they lack the sorts of things that you and I take for granted, is well on the past, but it's to us, okay, what can we do now that will make a difference? Mm. I was talked to uh, Bain Atwood, who's a historian who chronicled the history of the Jajarurung people. And I talked about, you know, at the state and federal government level, was it a failure, you know, like up until this point, if we have the closing the gap report, we've talked about some of the stats in terms of incarceration rate from 14% in 1991 to 28%, higher rates of mortality and morbidity for Aboriginal people. I guess I asked him whether he felt like state and federal governments had failed. And he said he thought that they hadn't. But how do we move forward and how do we change these things? Is it clear? Is it clear? Yes and no. Let me give you a kind of short answer. And this is kind of, I guess, the position I often come back to. It's a little bit simplistic in some ways. But ultimately, we need communities or societies where the adults or a critical mass of the adults are working. The kids see the adults working as normal and the kids are in school gaining an education that will lead them one day to be able to get a similar job to what they see mum and dad and uncle and auntie working in. So, you know, it sounds like a bit of a cliche, jobs and education. It's a little bit more detailed yes. than that. But I think that's what it comes down to. And, you know, it's interesting when we look at high achieving Indigenous people today in politics, academia, or whatever you know some of the ones that i agree with them and their buddies and some of them i disagree with and that we're, we're not so close or whatever but generally speaking they have a good education okay and they've had opportunities to participate in meaningful work now in remote communities certainly it's a bit more challenging there people like warren mundine would fairly optimistic about it it can be done but you know, it's you know not without its challenges now, having said that, I think there are some communities where it would be very difficult, if not impossible, um, to bring about economy, business, enterprise, good schooling, and that sort of thing. Those ones, we've got to make tough decisions. Does it require, I guess, just greater commitment and funding from state and federal governments? Well, if the funding can be channeled into something where there's going to be sustainability, a return, self-sufficiency, 
and that sort of thing. I'm all for pumping in millions to these places. But where the numbers are so small, the people aren't job ready, there's been generations of welfare dependency, it's going to be very difficult. And mm. in Australia, we do have some places like that due to our geography. We have these isolated remote communities. And when you have small isolated remote communities and the people are no longer leading a traditional life, it's, it's hard to build up a, a critical mass where you can make things happen where they're sustainable. I mean, isn't it to some extent like a, an interaction between those things, like I said, between the remoteness of the community, the lack of resources and the history yeah, the neglect. Yeah, white Australia policy, you know, we're not that far out of it, really. You know, we're not that far along. I mean, but society's changed substantially and there are far fewer racist people now than there were even 30, 40, 50 years ago. But, I mean, that all must have, to some extent, an effect on a group of people, a culture's psyche. Sure, and you said there's an interaction of things. One that you had collected, and it's not a criticism, people's own personal values, their own psyches and their own reflection on things. Coming back to discussing the past, I've always said people are never victims of their past but only ever victims of their view of the past. So you can have two people living in the same circumstances. One barely survives and the other thrives. You can have two people living in bad conditions. One emerges bitter, the other emerges better. So there are personal factors and certainly a bit of luck plays a part, you know, but, you know, there are opportunities there. Yeah, well, I think to look into any type of future, you've got to at least hope for that, haven't you? Yep, and have someone to help you. Mm. But I think it's the nested complexity in terms of there are extreme views. Like if your extreme view was that the judicial system and, and the police force were just utterly corrupt, you know, if we're talking about a continuum of views, who are utterly racist. That would be one extreme view. And the other extreme view might be there is no racism at all occurring within any institution at any level. Surely the truth to me seems to be somewhere in between that and must rely on a layer of multiple complex sort of interactions. Well, the truth might be in between that, but it's not necessarily in the middle. You know, I think it's more towards one end and you can probably guess which end I think it's at. I don't know if you've seen The Guardian. This is the one I've read most recently, but they did an analysis. They got some of the data and they said that, you know, New South Wales police pursue more than 80% of Indigenous people found with small amounts of cannabis through the courts while letting others off with a warning, forcing young Aboriginal people into the criminal justice system and a cycle. What do we know about these sorts of issues? And if there is an issue there, how do you address it? Okay, well, I had a glimpse of that article recently, not too long ago, actually. And again, I'll say it too, I mean, with the Guardian, you mm. need to be careful. Yes. Uh, but also, just with data in general, yes. you need to be careful. So we know, for example, with the deaths in custody, the data has been misrepresented for a long time. The yes. truth has also been told for a long time, but it's been drowned out by the loud voices where that myth has been allowed to be promoted that Aboriginal people in custody are far more likely to die than non-Aboriginal people in custody. So we know that's not true. We also know, as I mentioned this before earlier too, you know, with Aboriginal kids, if there's not a good home to take them back to, well, then yes, they're more likely to be remanded in custody. But that article also made reference to um, cannabis cautioning scheme, which is worth looking up. And that basically said that there's two cautions or, or something like that, that a... Yes person can be given and that changes things 
I know that with Aboriginal people, they're often given more cautions or they've got prior convictions or, or something like that. Mm-hmm. So and I have a mate, he's a, he's a criminologist, and he said, you know, similar thing with sentencing in general. Judges, the courts, they bend over backwards not to send Indigenous defendants to jail. But in many cases, the seriousness of the offence and the amount of prize mm-hmm. have leave them with little choice. You're listening to the Deep Trouble podcast. Dr. Mark Halloran in conversation with Dr. Anthony Dillon, academic and commentator on Indigenous affairs. In each state, we have some version of an Aboriginal court and a Koori court, and they're weighing up things differently. It's like having a drug and alcohol court or a special court for people with problem gambling issues. But at what point is there an issue in relation to institutions? What do we actually need to correct? Generally speaking, the further upstream we aim for a solution, the more upstream solutions, the better. Now, of course, you've got to have downstream solutions as well and everything in between, but we shouldn't lose sight of the upstream. In terms of upstream solutions, you're talking about at a local government level or a local community level rather than at a federal or state level making these sorts of legislative changes. Yeah. Yeah. I'll ask you about this. I think you said that there are three great untruths that you feel affect Aboriginal people. (laughs) Okay, you've done a lot of reading, yeah. Let me see if I can get to it. Okay, I think that you feel as though a lot of Aboriginal people when they've come to activism have taken on a far, far left view an ideology and you feel as though that ideology is problematic and actually doesn't help the community. And it also seems as though you feel it creates an antagonism, which means that it doesn't create a dialogue. Because I know that the things that you've said about deaths in custody and the Black Lives Matter movement, that's probably led to a reasonable amount of vitriol from other Aboriginal academics and public figures. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the anger and vitriol was there before. Probably wouldn't matter what they said, the same ones would would be on my back for something. Like, it seems as though you've got your views and, you know, and you've got your rationale for your views. Is there some middle ground between you and those people that don't agree with you? Like, in terms of a conversation? For some of them, no. no. I would like to think we all want Aboriginal people to lead healthy, safe, happy lives. And I was in a room in Manhattan a couple of years ago at the United Nations Indigenous Peoples Forum. And I was there with the Aussies. And it was the biggest group they'd ever had. Would have been 20, 30 of us there. And, you know, everyone was introducing themselves and talking about the titles of the CEO of this and the CEO of that and president of this and all this sort of thing. And they spoke about the politics, the Oppression, the racism, the need for a treaty, the voice, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So yeah. we're asked, you know, to reduce ourselves and just talk about what your goals are and, and that sort of thing, wishes and hopes. And when it got to my turn, I just basically said I would like every Aboriginal person in Australia to have the option of having a nice, nutritious breakfast the way we are all having right now, because they put on a big breakfast for us. I would like to think that even my worst enemy out there could agree with me and say yes. We'd like to see mums and dads and their kids living in environments that are clean and safe, where they have an opportunity to engage in meaningful activity, which is usually, but not always, jobs, paid jobs. So hopefully there's that intersection there. And we would disagree on the other things and probably how to achieve that and other symbolic things like treaties and constitutional recognition and that sort of thing. 
Well, I mean, do you enter into dialogues with people? I mean, are you able to or have you had experience entering into yeah, dialogues? Yeah, with yeah look, I do. Um, yeah. And there's a, a couple of people who are, we are very opposed to each other in terms of beliefs and ideologies and that, and I won't name them just to protect yes. them. <laughs> a couple of these people are well-known. They've got public profiles. We can have very respectful conversations. So conflict and disagreement's never the problem. It's, you know, when you make it about the other person that it's the problem. And the people I disagree most strongly with, of those who do maintain goodwill for me, I admire them very, very much. And you just think, well, look, you know, there's goodwill here. The things he believe and I believe, we're not going to make it an, an issue. We, we respect each other's right to see it differently. Let's just maintain the, the good friendship. But having said that, I think there's far many more who just want to criticise me, bring me down, slander me. Yes. When I read your work or just your, your blog and your ideas, it seemed as a, a voice that I hadn't encountered before. When I started to read, I thought, oh, they're very good arguments you know, in terms of to standardisation against populations and things like that. And, and I do read, try to read everything that I read fairly critically. But I know when I was reading your work, you talked about figures like Jacinda Price, and I wondered whether you'd you identify as sort of conservative and whether you felt like you were a minority within the Aboriginal community. Definitely a minority in the vocal community, but I think there's a lot of quiet supporters out there in the Indigenous community. And yeah. I can understand them wanting to be quiet. I respect that. And there's a time and a place for them to come out. But I do get lots of messages, and Jacinta gets many more, from Indigenous people who are very supportive. Well, I suppose it's a highly emotive issue. And I mean, all of the issues around Indigenous affairs are highly emotive. So it, I guess once passions are ignited, then people can sort of go to war, can't they? Well, not just with Indigenous affairs, just their ideologies in general. Some people who are very, well, I think generally speaking, people who are very secure in their beliefs and their ideologies don't mind being questioned, quizzed, disagreed with or attacked. People who are not do not like to be challenged. I suppose your own experience of culture as well, which is like your family culture and your own connection, you, you seem to have very clear ideas around culture. And I wondered how important that had been to you throughout your life. Okay. Again, anyone can look up the dictionary and find a definition for culture, but it is still a difficult term to grasp. But I, I guess you might want to call that cultural. Certainly family attributes largely to yeah. cultural experience. But for me, it's always been about family. And that was on both sides of the family, where in terms of the love, the fun, the affection, the lessons learned, there was no difference between that received and engaged with in my mother's family or my father's family. So, yeah, you know, if that was gone, that would be a big hole in my life. And then, you know, my culture was just, you know, I was raised in Brisbane. It was just normal city life. And, you know, as far as the Aboriginal culture goes from the Aboriginal family, I wouldn't even call it an Aboriginal culture. I would just call it a culture of love. That's how I was, I was raised with the Aboriginal family. Same with yeah. the non-Aboriginal family. It was a culture of love. Right. All about connecting and loving and helping and, you know, all the good yeah. things which I think a lot of families value. I mean, that's the familial culture, isn't it, of love, you know, that families get. It. I think it varies as well. So some people, culture is really important. Language is really important and cultural practices are really important. And for other people, it's sort of, well, that's interesting and I've got a passing interest in that, but it, it doesn't form the main focus of my life. Yeah. And so it sounds like more on the side of, well, I'm sort of aware of my culture and, you know, my language group or 
tribe or whatever else, but it's not like a great focus of mine. No, you know, I haven't gone out of my way to learn language like there'd be a few others. And I know that one of the people in my father's family is a, is a keeper of the language or trying to do that. And good on him. If, if that's what he wants to do, that's fine. Certainly not one of the people who will try and learn language. I'm not going to write them on the consensus form, other language spoken at home and then put down, you know, Aboriginal or, or a tribe or whatever. Mm. Um, you know, a lot of people today who, who claim to be speaking Aboriginal language, it's not a natural thing. It's something that they've bolted on later in life. And I've had lots of discussions with Jacinta's father about yes. this, Dave, who's yes. a linguist. And so he knows language, Aboriginal language, very, very well. And he was telling me, you know, what gets taught today as Aboriginal language is, you know, a bit artificial, the pronunciation's wrong. Unless you're learning it from a native speaker, the pronunciation will be wrong. And, you know, languages should reflect the lifestyles and the culture and the times in which they were used. And in this day and age, we have so many different things, artifacts and different ways of viewing the world. There is no Aboriginal language words to describe it fully. Does that make sense? Yes, certainly there are things that exist now that have no, that you couldn't translate from 230 years ago, you know. um, Road rage. Yes, yes. Well, is the preservation of those things important, you know, in terms of culture? I'm more concerned about the preservation of people. Right. Now, today's people are, for many Aboriginal people, are in a very different context. They're not living in large numbers in one space. And in order, and I'm no linguist, no anthropologist or anything like that, but it's my understanding in order to keep a language going, you've got to have a large critical mass of people who are using it regularly. Now, what we can acknowledge, we don't have to, again, but we can acknowledge you and I, that due to the arrival of white man, the, the destruction, the dispersion, that sort of thing, a lot of languages have been lost, Correct. I don't have a problem acknowledging that. It's not a good thing, but it is reality. Therefore, it will be difficult to bring it back to how it was. So you'd be getting something which is not quite the real deal often, and I better just safeguard myself against that. I'm sure that there are some people out there, and I've met them, who do know their language, and they are interested in passing it on to those people who are interested in learning it. But in terms of getting the large numbers, the critical mass, it's going to be difficult. So I would much rather focus on preserving the people, making sure that they, you know, if we follow Maslow's hierarchy, that you know yes. we meet their physical needs, then we, you know, meet their um, safety and security, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And if out of that they want to learn language or customs and and that sort of thing, fine. And I think you know Jacinta's a good example where you know she wouldn't be fully fluent in her mother's language; she would know it better than a lot of people. But nor is she pretending to be a native speaker because she's got to learn the skills that serve her best in the world she lives in today. Does that make sense? Yes, yeah. You're listening to the Deep Trouble podcast. Dr. Mark Halloran in conversation with Dr. Anthony Dillon, academic and commentator on Indigenous affairs. It's a question that I may ask more often now, but I mean, in terms of your family or your your own interactions with people in your own social group, people that have different views from you, have you ever believed something and then have changed your mind, like completely? Have I ever believed something and then changed my mind completely? Yes. Yes, of course. Do you mean in regard to Aboriginal issues or...? 
Oh, well, you know, well, that's probably a good example, but yeah. Well, certainly, yes. I mean, I there's no example that comes to mind immediately. If you'd, have, if you'd have sent me some questions, I may have thought of some examples, but Sorry. Well, <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> what I'm teaching, I do guest lectures from time to time at universities on Indigenous psychology. And in every lecture, I always tell them, I say, look, what I am teaching you today is my beliefs and understandings today. In six months' time, that might change. In fact, I hope there are some little changes, big changes or whatever, because we shouldn't just assume that our knowledge is always correct and it's bottled up, mm. okay? We should accept challenges. We should confront each other. We should explore. We, you know, we should test and that sort of thing. So, yes, I'm happy to change my mind. Now, here's one example. And again, I won't name names. And I was talking about this person today. He's a white fellow, an academic, and has a very deep, rich understanding of the educational needs of remote Aboriginal kids. And I'd always taken this view, well, you know, these Aboriginal kids, if we, we want them to survive and prosper in modern Australia today, we've got to give them a westernised education, blah, 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 blah. And I still think it's good to give them elements of westernised education. And indeed, the states and territories demand that. But this person is very much about making it very culturally appropriate. And he just doesn't just use that as a cliche. He talks about the syllabus, the curriculum should be embedded in Indigenous culture. And he's moved me away, you know, on a left-right spectrum as far as Indigenous kids, Indigenous education. For kids in remote, Aboriginal kids in remote areas where they still have those cultural ties, he's moved me from the right yeah. to the centre a bit. And he's just so genuine. Like I said, he's a white fella, so genuine and committed and I said to him once, I said, look, I agree 100% with what you're saying about the, the values of education for these Indigenous kids, but you're never going to be able to change the system. You know, the whole NAPLAN, westernised way is dominating. It's mandated by the states and territories. You're not going to change the system. He said, that's true, but that's not going to stop me from trying every day. I just admired him so much for that. Mm. So he's still getting his articles published in quality journals giving good presentations at conferences around Australia. And he just respects and understands Indigenous culture and how it is for these young kids at odds with the westernised education system. What was it that he told you? I mean, if it was one thing that really changed your mind? Oh, um, I can't pinpoint it, but I guess just the fact that well, first of all, I think most people would realise our education system, you know, although I've risen up through it and thrived, has a lot of shortcomings. You know, the emphasis on testing, rote learning, postmodernism, you know, teaching to the normal curve, you know, all that sort of thing. Here I am telling a stats guru what he already oh, knows. I'm not a guru. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you know, I've done yes. well in that system, but I acknowledge with a lot of other people and I think Einstein said something like, it's a shame that your education ruins your learning. And so yeah. our education system isn't that great. I can't think of how to improve it. You know, although I've survived in it, for remote people, it really is a, a different world away from them. So, you know, they had their own education system long before the white man arrived. And I'm not saying it's perfectly in place now. Mm. Um, it's been mocked and chatted a bit, but they still have a core of it in some communities, at least anyway. And that should be respected. And so rather than thinking, well, no, well, we've got to educate these kids such that they do well in the net plan and then they get an entrance score, blah, 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 blah. For these kids, that may not suit them. If it does suit them and they want to go to yeah. boarding school or, or they want to do well in, in school, that's fine. 
but it shouldn't totally replace the indigenous ways, mm. thinking, learning, and that sort of thing. Oops. Now, having said that, so that someone doesn't run off with what I'm saying, what I've just said applies mostly to indigenous kids who live in rural or remote areas where there's still that strong cultural connection. And I say that otherwise someone will take what I've said and then they then want to apply it to every Aboriginal kid in the city school you know, who's far removed from that. That makes sense? You, yeah, of course. Yeah, you said you teach Indigenous psychology. Here in the city. Right. And so, I mean, what are some of the key learnings there? And what are the things that would surprise people about Indigenous psychology? Again, in every lecture I say this, that the commonalities between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people far outweigh the differences. So for me, that's a starting point. Okay, so Aboriginal people are not a completely different species. Aboriginal people are people first and Aboriginal second. So if there's a good psychology system, it'll work for both Indigenous and non-Indigenous people. And, you know, the, the good best research talks about our fundamental needs, um, you know, needs for connecting with others, needs for autonomy and, and freedom of expression and pursuit of goals and that sort of thing seem to apply just as much for the Aboriginal person as they do for the non-Aboriginal person. I guess one of the differences then, because we're always interested in differences. Yeah, okay, good point. Mm. Um, differences, without getting too deep, are often, I like to say generally that the psychology for Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people is the same. So psychology looks at the processes of the mind. Okay? Yes. How the mind works. If we look at the sociology... It's the contents people deal with, and they're often very different. So Indigenous people are you know, often disadvantaged financially, economically. They're often isolated. So if I just take a very simple example, if you have an Indigenous person, and this could apply to someone with a low socioeconomic status as well, but let's suppose they're in a location where they can't easily get to a nearby town or you know, to get to the library or whatever, they're going to get frustrated. and at that point, a psychologist might step in and say, oh, okay, you're frustrated. You've been feeling depressed. Oh, you've been depressed. Okay, clearly got depression. But in actual fact, what the psychologist done is it's taken a social situation problem and then they've psychologized it. So this person doesn't have a faulty mind. They're in a situation where the simple solution could be, there could be other people in the, in the same town. What if we organized a bus service? You know? so instead of psychologizing the problem, realize that there's a, you know, a practical problem here, transport or whatever. How about we just put in a bus service and then they can go to town frequently um, and, you know, go to the library or go to the theatre or go to the restaurant or whatever. That's just a simple example. Does that make sense? That's an example around, I suppose, people that are in a position, as you said, it might be a socioeconomic position where they lack resources. Yeah. I mean, I think I read many years ago that Indigenous people in remote communities had a higher intelligence in relation to topographical information well okay that's the other thing i i'm glad you brought that up so yeah. just back to your first question to simple answer what's the differences as far as psychology goes very little the differences are in sociological and that sort of thing but if we just look at intelligence and this is something i talk on teach you cannot separate intelligence from context okay and intelligence is about adaptive behavior now, if I said to you, what's the best move in chess, you'd laugh at me because it depends on your style, your mm. opponent's style, where the other pieces are, how many pieces you've lost, how many pieces, you know. 
to say what's the best move in chess is just a ridiculous, you know, even to say what's the best opening move is mm. very, very short-sighted. So intelligence talks about adaptive behaviour. And we know that Aboriginal people traditionally, like Eskimos, adapted to very, very harsh living environments. And so if intelligence is a measure of your adaptiveness to an environment, then we know that traditional Aboriginal people, you know, although they didn't all survive, were fairly adaptive and they would do a lot better than if you and I were transported back in time with our existing skill set and mm. asked to survive for a week on the land. I always give the example when I'm teaching psychology classes about Aboriginal psychology. I was in Dubai once and I had to line up at the bus shelter to, to get my bus ticket. There was a short queue and a long queue. I did what I thought was the intelligent thing. I hopped in the short queue, which is what I would do here in Australia. Why would you want to line up in the long queue? A guy came over and got me. He said, mate, well, you didn't say mate. He said, no, this queue is for the ladies. You can't stand in this queue. You've got to come and stand in the guy's queue. What I thought was intelligent behaviour was actually dumb behaviour yes. <laughs> in that cultural context. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, again, coming back to psychology, intelligence, even though it's, it's hard to define, most people, we agree that the more of it you've got, the better. But given that the contexts differ, well, then how intelligence is harnessed and used is going to be different for people living in an Aboriginal culture compared to non-Aboriginal people living in non-Aboriginal culture. I didn't want to talk to many examples of deaths in custody because I realised that there are families and people grieving around people that have died in custody. So I didn't want to talk about individual cases in this interview, but I thought that was an interesting, well, it might be an important idea. Look, I'm like you. I generally, you know, there's exceptions, but I, I generally don't like talking about individual cases. However, mm -hmm. having said that, the activists, blacktivists out there won't hesitate to talk about individual cases if they can exploit it. Well, it seems like you're quite angry with the people that... Do. You can't uh, see my you, face. I've got a smile on my face. Right. You know, I could hear you laughing. But, I mean, it seems like you are very angry about some of these things where there is a, a definite difference of, well, you know, we'll, we'll call it opinion and, and ideas. What makes you so angry with them? Okay, again, angry is a bit of a strong word. Okay, well, you frustrated. choose a word. Frustrated. Why I'm frustrated is because of the consequences, the implications. When you send out the message there that white people are the enemy, that cops are going to kill you, that sort of thing, how could that possibly be good? When you send out the message that Aboriginal people going to jail don't fare very well, then, you know, you have someone on the run and, you know, they'd rather drive over a cliff then be arrested by the, the police officer. It's not good. Australia has an enormous amount of goodwill for Aboriginal people, and they just want to be friends, then a lot of them are. But, you know, if a person gets told, oh, you know, white people are, are no good, well, then white people can be treated with suspicion, despised, that sort of thing. So that's why. You know, I just want to see Indigenous people, like I said, have the same sorts of things that you and I take for granted. Thank you, Dr. Don. You're at the end, unless there's something you'd like to add. No, you've, you've pretty much exhausted me with your exhaustive <laughs> research. Never before I've had someone who's done their background check so well. So there it was, the interview with Anthony Dillon that Dr. Mark Halloran did only fairly recently.
Anthony's point seems to be, now let me see if I've got this right. He's saying that if you create an us versus them mentality by exaggerating differences, exaggerating present inequalities, you actually could exacerbate the problems that Indigenous people face because if Indigenous youths are petrified of the police, they may act in ways that are harmful to their best interests. He talks about driving off a cliff just so that the police can't catch you. You can increase that tension up to the point where you actually start to have results that... Diminishing uh, returns. Diminishing returns. Yeah, I think there's some context around this. I think there's some important historical context, which Anthony alluded to in the interview, which I think was probably hit the editing room floor. But Anthony's father, Colin Dillon, was Australia's first Indigenous police officer. And he is the highest decorated Aboriginal police officer, or was the highest decorated Aboriginal police officer in Australia. And he became one of Australia's best-known whistleblowers when he testified at the 1987 Fitzgerald Commission of Inquiry and changed the political and policing landscape in Queensland. So he testified against police corruption. Anthony comes from a family culture of extreme service and honesty. And so I feel as though it's understandable that his defence of the police and some of the calls around defunding the police and things like that, which are maybe borrowed from the American context, you can see that he would find that to be offensive in some way. There is a balance. I understand the conversations around systemic racism. But you do have to think about Aboriginal people who are working within the system, you know, who have achieved and worked within the system as police officers like Colin Dillon or like, as mentioned in this interview, Western Australia's first Aboriginal magistrate, Dr Sue Gordon, Australian public servant Mick Gooder and Jacinta Price. It is just as worthwhile listening to these Aboriginal people's perspectives. You don't have to agree with all of it, but there is something useful and valuable about listening to that. Mm-hmm. It seems to be very difficult in this highly polarised era. Highly emotional issues as well. You know, you have to look at the history of this. And so it is understandably highly traumatic and highly emotional for people. Well, that leads us to <laughs> next week's interview. And I think it would be appropriate for us to play your interview with Professor Thalia Anthony. Yep, okay. So next week's interview is with Dr. Thalia Anthony, whose expertise is in the areas of criminal law and her focus is on Indigenous people in the law. So she has a particular specialisation in Indigenous criminalisation and Indigenous community justice mechanisms. And it's probably fair to say that Thalia Anthony will provide quite a different perspective on these issues than Anthony Dillon. So join us next week here on 94.9 Main FM when Dr Mark Halloran interviews Professor Thalia Anthony. Deep Trouble is produced by Steve Charman in the studios of Main FM, Castle, Maine. Deep Trouble podcast is presented by Trouble Magazine at troublemag.com.
Thanks for listening. <laughs>